Hey everyone, this is Kike Autry with Psyche Podcast. What a great conversation with Dr. Duane Roussel. You know, Duane has become a good friend of mine offline. We've developed a cool friendship and we talk quite a bit. And so I thought it would be kind of neat to just get together spontaneously and have a conversation publicly that's recorded about some of the things that we've been exploring. In this specific conversation, we do get into the nature of relationships and boundaries, negativity and psychoanalysis. We explore some of his thoughts on Islam and the metaphor of caves. We talk about simps and tyrants, masculinity, femininity, Zizek, Lacan, Freud, and so much more. It's a broad and wide-ranging conversation that I think you'll enjoy. At the end of the day, it is a bunch of bullshit and just riffing on themes and topics. I'm sure we'll change our mind uh, maybe tomorrow or in a week, but I, I think it's worth thinking about. I think it's worth exploring, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as we did recording it. Thanks so much for listening, and as always, continue the conversation. So, Dwayne, man, it is really great to connect with you again on this podcast, Psyche. Um, I know the listeners won't necessarily know this, but uh, you and I have kind of sparked um, a friendship outside of the podcast world offline, and it's been really great to connect with you. We've talked about so many awesome things that I felt like it'd be great for just the world to hear some of our ramblings and bullshit. So I'm just kind of curious to see where it goes, but let me just say it's just good to see your face and it's good to connect. Uh, it's definitely mutual. I feel the same way. It's really nice when you can uh, build friendships that are not uh, based upon horizontal identifications, but are based upon a, a certain type of uh, shared interest in the work and in uh, articulating the, the discontents of our time. Yeah. No, that's really good. Now, when, when you say the friendships based on horizontal identifications, what do you, what do you mean by that? Like what, what rubs you the wrong way? about that i think that's an interesting way to put it yeah i i think this is some of the uh, work that's been coming out of the new lacanian school um but you're seeing it in other places uh, i can't remember who it was but uh, somebody recently quite a well-known psychoanalyst came out with a book on uh, she didn't call it fraternities but it was basically the same idea that what happens when the father falls, when patriarchy as an organizing principle of the social bond falls, is that there can be uh, social bonds based upon horizontal identifications with the siblings, with the brothers, with the comrades, and, and these sorts of things. And uh, that can produce a certain type of insularity that I'm increasingly suspicious of, a certain type of um, retreat from the world together. And I think that's actually how Lacan put it at one time. There's this way in which you are building a world as a bubble. And by living inside of the bubble, you think that's the world. Mm. But every time the bubble confronts the world, it potentially pops. Mm. Oh, I, I love that, Dwayne. And, and I'm going to admit, I can fall into that myself if I'm not careful. I, I see quite a bit of that lately, like on Twitter, on on social media, on the internet, is, is, is that where, where you're confronting it as well? Do, do you have any specific examples you could talk about? 
Um, well, I think there's a lot of different examples, but the most prevalent one, I mean, we're all kind of familiar with it, um, is the way in which social movements have evolved, particularly in the West, particularly in the American continent. They've evolved in a particular direction. You know, like, let's say there were kind of um, three paradigms of social movements in the West. I think this is key. Um, and we can see these social movements as perhaps exemplary of a particular type of politics in a particular era, each perhaps being the defining feature of its era. The first one would be what some sociologists have called old social movements, OSMs. The old social movement paradigm was this idea that social movements can be formed based upon a universal um, or quasi-universal belief in exploitation. We have been exploited. We come to we're, we become conscious of our exploitation. You know, we're working in factories or whatever. We're part of some sort of proletariat, something like that. And if we could just become a class for ourselves, we could overthrow capitalism and, and the class-based mode of stratification and usher in perhaps something like communism. Hmm. This was a particular politics that we would consider to be revolutionary at a particular era. I'm not saying that paradigm has evaporated. It's certainly still here. Sure. Um, you can see it in Western Marxism. You can, you can still hear resonances of this position as if it's still suited to the world that we're in today and so on. It, it didn't go anywhere. It's just been kind of displaced. And then there emerged what were called the new social movements, the NSMs, which were mostly recognition-based social movements. These are movements who are striving for recognition, identification, and so on. They, um, they want um, to be recognized for their identities, for their issues, for their topics, and so on. And then um, you had what, I'm talking quite a bit here, so forgive me, but I am getting to a point. And then you get what's what's called the newest social movements. This was a paradigm that uh, was described at first by Richard J.F. Day, a sociologist, an anarchist sociologist from Queens University at the time. I don't think he's at Queens anymore. I think he's in British Columbia or something like that. But he said the newest social movement saw the pitfalls in the OSMs and the NSMs. And those pitfalls were believing that revolution or politics was reducible to a logic of reform or revolution, both mm. of which are hegemonic positions, both of which engage in a politics where you believe the world is structured by a principle of repression. Um, there is an all against which you are uh, showing that you are victimized or fractured as a not all and these sorts of things. Mm. Against that, the newest social movements emerged as a certain type of politics of retreat and this has been my critique of the newest social movement paradigm. Basically what you had, and you see it in Marxism, you see it in anarchist social movements and so on, were movements suddenly refusing to engage with the world, with the dominant hegemonic structures of the world, refusing to engage in confrontations with master figures and so on, but they would build autonomous sort of spaces um, where they can experiment with freedom today that's how mm. Hakim Bates, this post-anarchist, the first post-anarchist perhaps, put it. You know, are we are we destined to not taste some freedom today? Let's let's explore, let's let's engage in some um, uh, future-oriented politics, try and build the politics that we would like to see tomorrow today, prefiguring it, and so on. And this was a quite an interesting position that the newest social movements had. 
but I don't think we saw the way in which our revolutionary discourse contributed to our contemporary discontents, because what you have today is precisely that. A lot of movements that are withdrawing from engagements with others, withdrawing from engagements with um, uh, uh, the very figures or things or ideas that are traumatizing them. And so I think uh, this is where we're seeing it very sharply. We're seeing it in the universities. Okay. Um, universities. I mean, I remember when I finished my uh, second PhD, I ended up going out into the world and thinking, oh my God, the world is way different than what I thought it was when I was in the university. I never saw the way in which in the name of liberal arts, in the name of um, um, interdisciplinarity, multidisciplinarity, in the name of the virtues that we assign to the liberal arts, we had produced this bubble, mm. this, this, this space of retreat from the world. And so I think these are the places you really see it. You see it in today's revolutionary movements. You see it in the universities. Um, you're seeing it uh, kind of uh, everywhere. Mm. Yeah, man. You know, one of the things that's coming up for me, we don't have to spend too much time here, but you know that I kind of have a background in religion and theological studies. This, this was something that happened in certain religious communities where they would become insular and get trapped in this sort of ideological bubble and they wouldn't literally engage the world. And I, I know you're not necessarily talking about that, but that's one of the, the analogies that's coming up in my mind is how easy it is for these communities that have like-minded beliefs to, yeah, become almost hermetic or insular and to not really engage with the world. And I think that's problematic. It, it's problematic, but it's also, in a weird way, it's also truthful. Mm. Because we know that there are no relationships between these groups, you know? But now we like we really know that, Nobody <laughs> is, you know, for a long time, we had this idea that like we could be duped by social relationships, like we're in a relationship. We don't we don't see that we can never actually reach the other, that we're actually trapped in our own worlds. Today, I think this secret has been revealed. Mm. Like we all know very well that we don't relate to anybody. I mean, look at the contemporary discussion of boundaries. I think you and I were going to talk about. Yeah. That. What, what is going on here on social media when we're talking about boundaries? When I, read, when I read about what people are saying about boundaries, basically what I'm reading is a boundary is a way to retreat from the other. Focus on yourself, focus on what you can control only for yourself. You know, you can't control the other and this other thing. The boundary is the interface with the other. Mm. Boundary is a way you interface with the other. And it can go one of two ways. It can be a reason to retreat back into your own world and never enter into the tyranny of a relationship, which is, I mean, relationships are controlled forms of tyranny in a certain respect. <laughs> that's, that's, that's not going to sell very well, right? We can't put that on a t-shirt, but maybe we should. <laughs> to a greater or lesser extent, I mean, um, relationships are, are very difficult places. When I, when I think about the world today, okay, our environment, whatever the environment is, whether it's capitalism, we call that, or our relationships. Our environment isn't what it used to be. Mm. We're not in the old environment where, you know, we had some sort of a repressive apparatus. We had a tyrannical sort of uh, breadwinner model of the family. Some people would call that tyrannical. Other people perhaps wouldn't. 
and, and this sort of stuff. Um, today, what you have is, a, is an environment that's essentially defined by boundarylessness. Mm. The environment capitalism is without boundaries. It's precisely as Todd McGowan calls it in a book that's coming out very soon. Capitalism is defined as pure excess. Mm. It's pure excess. It doesn't know limits. It can just keep going and going. It can destroy the environment, the third world, so-called third world. Sure. It can, it can, and it can, and it's striving for limits, pragmatically. You know, it'll create commodities that will introduce limits, like uh, cell phones that will cut out um, social media, so that you will only make phone calls or only text certain people, or it'll give you cans of Coca-Cola. I have some in the fridge. I bought them for my son. And I uh, yesterday that are half the size. And oh yeah, yeah, the ten ounce. What we're purchasing are limits, you know. But the limit never holds, and so we we say, okay, that limit's not good enough. We need another product. We need another commodity, you know, and this sort of thing. So what we're dealing with in our in our environment today is a limitlessness. That, you know, if a boundary means anything at all, it means precisely that we put limits to our environment, mm. whether that's a relationship environment or whether that's capitalism. We need some limits. Now, I'm not saying these need to be like putting people in cages and, and stuff like right. that. Right. But, but look, when people talk about a boundary and you can only focus on your boundaries, who am I? In a sense, when you're living in an, env in an environment of limitlessness, of pure excess, there is no me yet. The boundary is precisely the breathing room where a me can exist in the context of a relationship. So if there are no boundaries placed upon the other, whether the other is capitalism, uh, whether the other is a partner, whatever it is, if there are no boundaries there, there is no subject of love. Mm. There is no revolutionary subject. The boundary is precisely a limitation that can impose a place where love can emerge. Mm. And so I think this is the conundrum that we're in. Revolutionary politics today is operating in conjunction with the environment. Yeah. Rather than setting itself as a space against which it can offer an alternative. Okay, good. So, Dwayne, I don't know if this is your language, but what's coming up for me in terms of my framework is that maybe the way you're talking about boundaries is actually a way to experience a type of freedom would 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 yeah. you would you align with that or would you put it differently? No, I, I like that, you know, because who knows freedom? Who knows freedom? First off, I'll say two points. One is that freedom is terrifying. There's no there's no greater suffering than to be free. Right. This is I mean, we know this everywhere from Kierkegaard to Lacan. Who knows freedom is a prisoner. Mm. The prisoner knows freedom very well. The prisoner experiences the desire for freedom from within the confines of his prison, you know. And this is why, in since you, um, you and my other friend uh, Mark, uh, both like to talk uh, and, and study, uh, let's say, uh, religious discourse or theology or religious experience. This is why I've been quite fascinated by the Islamic conception mm. of caves which is quite different from the Christian or the Platonic conception of caves. A cave is a prison, right? And in the idea of, let's say, the Christian tradition, from my reading, and perhaps a, it's a poor reading, but it serves me, the idea is you need to get out of the cave. This is resurrection, right. this, this enlightenment, you know, 
get out of the cave, stop being a prisoner, experience freedom, and this sort this sort of stuff. Not at all. What happens in Islam in the in the story of the seven sleepers of the cave? You have um, people who are living in a pagan world of excess. It's a world where you are free, radically free, uh, by interpretation, radically free to worship any god, to be an atheist, whatever you want. You know, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> masturbatory enjoyment is sure. precisely what it is. And that is, they realize that this enjoyment is a horrible way to suffer. Mm. So they go in search of a cave that they can tolerate. And what I find fascinating is against the nightmare of pure excess, the nightmare of the environment, they find a cave and a belief that they can tolerate and they go to sleep, they dream, and the dreams um, push the nightmare into the background. Uh, and I think that's that's a revolutionary act mm. to find your prison, you know? I'm, I'm not saying we should all go to prison. I'm saying find a prison you know, find a prison that, that suits you. Find a prison that you're comfortable with. A prison that will give you the space from which to dream of a freedom. Mm. You know, I'm not saying we, su we should subjugate ourselves to tyranny and all this other stuff. But, you know, a, a relationship is a prison. Yeah. So, 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 so Dwayne, you know, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, me. I'm, I'm not interested in like formulas or easy steps, but I'm, I'm curious kind of what's coming up even as my role as a therapist, because I love this idea of finding your prison. How would you then encourage someone who has found a prison to stay connected or to communicate with others in their prison? I'll throw out that kind of image and see where you go with that. Yeah. Um, well, you know, there's a lot of practices. Some prisoners write on the walls. Some prisoners, I don't know if you saw V from Vendetta. No, I haven't. <laughs> Putting, putting letters underneath or writing mm. letters, you know, um, uh, writing a letter can be a wonderful way to communicate in a relationship. Um, the love letter, the love letter is a wonderful uh, tool. I mean, you're really writing to yourself, but in writing to yourself, you're making the other present. Um, but, you know, prisoners, there's a long history of prisoners communicating with the outside world through their prison window, through a screen, you know. And that screen is what Lacanians call fantasy. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I've had patients who describe things like this, you know, being out in a crowd and there's activists everywhere and so on. And they're communicating with prisoners who are hanging out of the windows. Uh, so I think this is the condition for communication, uh, not a not a way to preclude communication mm. what we're doing out here in the world of freedom we might think it's communicating but it's not we're communicating with our enjoyment which is quite different you know to communicate with your enjoyment um, is not to communicate in a way where you can ever experience um, the, the loss of enjoyment that would give rise to an interest in others mm. so I mean, we, Marshall McLuhan, a very long time ago, way before the internet, described this phenomena as an echo chamber. Mm. We hear only what we want to hear. Absolutely. Man, that's so resonant with me kind of nowadays. You know, one of the things that's coming up for me, too, is just thinking about some of our previous discussions. I know we both kind of have an interest at some level around, like, autism. Do, do you see the autistic experience as a type of 
cave experience as a type of being in, in one's own world and then trying to figure out how to communicate with others? Absolutely. I think it is. I think... Um, I do some, too. Like, ju- just in a, like, in, a, in a theoretical way, sure. I think we might want to risk generalizing the experience of aut- autism just in a, in a thought experiment way. Because what we discover in autistic experience is um, the loss of the other, but the subsequent attempt to invent an other. Mm. And the way that autistic people uh, tend to invent others um, is not unlike the way that many of us tend to in, uh, invent a space for the other. I'm not saying it actually brings the other into existence, but it's close. We do it with our... Uh, with our products, with, uh, with the clothes that we make when we put it on Etsy, with our philosophizing. We philosophize today from the bedroom. It's tethered to our, to our, to our, our sense of our, uh, ourselves. It's not separate from us. We don't feel exploited or alienated from what we're producing like we did in the good old days of, of industrial capitalism, according to Marx. You know, when right. we build products today, we're doing it literally from our bedrooms, you know? <laughs> Um, we're not leaving the bedroom feeling disconnected or alienated from our products, which would be a neurotic experience. The autistic experience is, this is something I've fashioned. It's my choice. Uh, I'm not alienated in the four ways that Marx claimed that I'm alienated from the mm. product. The object hasn't fallen off. Object the off hasn't fallen off. I'm tethered to it. So, you know, I, I make costumes, I put it on Etsy, but I choose what these costumes are. I choose the product. I choose how it's made. I choose if and when I want to sell it. I choose who I'm going to work with. And this is a very fraternal approach in a sense, you know? Um, so we end up um, in relationships with people who in some sense are, um, are um, part of that practice. Sure. Oh, that's so through our costumes, through our inventions, I think. Yeah. Oh, that's 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 so good, Dwayne. Yeah, no, I I really, really resonate with that. Man, thank you. I I, I guess another thing that's maybe coming up for me is thinking about and and yes, this is kind of connected to the recent book or the the book that's coming out that you worked on with Mark Murphy, kind of negativity and psychoanalysis. Is there anything you can say about that and, and how maybe that might connect to some of the things we've been talking about? Yeah, I can try. I'm not sure what I can say. But, <laughs> I mean, the book came out of um, feeling a confusion on my part. I don't want to speak for Mark. I, I presume it might be similar to the answer I'm giving, but sure. maybe not. I mean, Mark has his own um, trajectory, his sure. own ideas, his own way of relating to this stuff. But uh, it's clear that Mark and I have um, a similar sort of program. Um, but I think we noticed that um, the concept of negativity and the theory of death drive was being used in a particular way that didn't resonate for us in our readings. And so we were confused. It wasn't that we thought we knew the correct way to interpret death drive and how death drive is manifested in contemporary culture today or or what toxic positivity is, but we were just really confused and we were doubting our knowledge about what that meant. And so we wanted to gather together people from disparate traditions, clinic, philosophy, uh, theology, um, sociology, and, and so on, to see how they kind of were dealing with this. 
And we were led to the conclusion that um, a lot of times when people are using these words, negativity, death drive, and so on, they're using them as if they're still situated within a bygone era. Mm. There's something tremendously positive about death drive. There's something tremendously positive about war. There's something tremendously positive about culture today. So when we talk about negativity and how we are so negative and critical and all this stuff in our philosophy, critical theory, there's nothing less critical than critical theory today. Mm. In my estimation, it's resolutely positive. In what sense? What Lacan discovered from Death Drive wasn't negativity. It was the positivity of what Lacan called jouissance. There is an aspect of jouissance that, um, I mean, when you're reading uh, Freud's work on the death drive, he describes a membrane. There's this protective barrier, you know, where you're constantly, you're, the positivity of your enjoyment is constantly encountering a traumatic negative force that exists in the world. Mm. Um, so we thought it's really weird that things have gotten twisted because when people are describing negativity, what they're actually doing is testifying to their own jouissance. There's no negativity here. Uh, so this is what we were trying to do. There, there, there is a non-negativized, that's how I know in the book describes it, but it's also, I think, how Jacques Lemelaire and others describe it. There is something of enjoyment that refuses to be relinquished. Mm. It's really difficult to let go of this positive substance that we call jouissance and that is tethered to the body. We won't let go of our philosophical presuppositions. We won't let go of our educational um, indoctrination. You know, I was in university for like 18 years. <laughs> you know, it's really hard after you've studied, let's say, Marxism for a really, really long time. You've read David Har Harvey. You've read um, uh, Frederick Jameson. You've read Zizek and all this stuff to suddenly say, wait a minute, maybe maybe this isn't necessarily describing the world we're in anymore. Mm. There's a certainty and a conviction in these in these uh, positions, and it's absolutely implicated in our jouissance. Mm. Yeah, man, that's that's so good. No, and and I and I I I hear you coming back to some of these themes throughout your different writing and and, and podcasts, and it's kind of exciting to think about where it's going to head, where it's going to go. I, I know you've been reflecting on artificial intelligence. I mean, there's some things we've been talking about offline that are really interesting. I I, I wonder how you find yourself maybe utilizing some of these ideas in terms of actual practices or, or other things that are going on in the world? Yeah, I mean, I try and pay attention to what's happening in the world, but I, I never get too, too um, smart about it. <laughs> um, AI, I think, is, is, is really interesting to mm. me. And what I've tried to do is um, sort of situate three modalities of the scientific death drive. Lacan said it clearly, science is death drive. Science is death drive. Um, and I think we're really on the cusp of something today because what we realized from the plague was that science um, moves in such a way that it always encounters its limits too late. And when it does, it's traumatizing. Mm. And the plague, COVID, was an example. 
you know, suddenly, perhaps something slipped from under a lap door. Those are Lacan's words from La Troisième, um, way before the plague. Perhaps something slips under the, the lab laboratory door. And now we have to face the consequences. And then we scramble to try and come up with ethics, pragmatic measures, drugs, more scientific solutions to fix what we've caused. Um, so from the plague, we realized that science has an impact upon the body. We feel it. It's a feverish impact. We're very, we're very sick from science in our bodies. Um, and as you move from plague to new technologies, new media, finally to artificial intelligence and the way in which AI is now in this very moment being connected to various forms of gadgets, mm. therapy culture, um, to um, the one that I find most fascinating are sex gadgets, sex dolls that are increasingly uh, being um, incorporated with AI, is that we can see the way in which artificial intelligence um, uh, demonstrates that science can approach something of science fiction. And when it approaches a fiction, we can see that it's capable of confronting a lie. Mm. And it's only when you can confront the lie that you can enter into the field of the other. The field of the other for Lacan is the field of lies. Science is all about truth. There's no lies. It's certainty. It, you know, this is so on. Yeah. There's no lie when it comes to science in, in some really naive sense. But as you approach science fiction, you can see the lie. And it's only by passing through the lie that you can encounter the other. Mm. You can encounter otherness. And I think that this is what um, what artificial intelligence can bring us to uh, finally confront. Lacan liked science fiction. He didn't like science so much. Okay, yeah, I'm kind of the same way. So would the lie be a type of boundary? I think the lie is a, is a boundary. I think ultimately the boundary is a lie that you're willing to accept. It's, it's a rule. Go 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 with that. That that that's an interesting way to think about boundaries and relationships. I mean, they're they're a type of fiction. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, it's it's a type of fiction and friction. Mm. And I think that um, the boundary is we know it's bullshit. When people on Twitter are talking about boundaries in the last week or two, yes, they're talking like, I'm not going to be duped by this manipulative bullshit. <laughs> and they're right. They shouldn't be duped by it in a sense. They want to be on the side of truth. Right. They're not duped by the, the bullshit. But a boundary is a bound error. Mm. It's a bound error. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a way to bind yourself to an other through an error, through a lie, through a lot of error. It's, it's, it's a space of fiction, and you say, okay, I know it's bullshit, but I'm going to do it anyway. Mm. And that's why I always say to fall in love, you really have to allow yourself to be stupid. These, these non-dupes that now populate our, our universe, I wouldn't say world, but our universe, these non-dupes, what they're ultimately incapable of doing is loving. Because oh. for them, love is tyranny. Love is tyranny. And what it produces is I've been experimenting with this idea, I see it also in the Antigone uh, uh, story or narrative, is that it produces a situation where when you fall in love, um, as a, let's say as a man, you either have to be a simp, and the simp is simply a prop, a costume for the other who doesn't want to relate to you, 
uh, friend zone to whatever else. Sure. Or you're a tyrant, a tyrant in the worst sense of the term. Mm. You're the person who's going to traumatize them. So my idea, and I'm taking it in some sense from anarchism, where anarchism says neither slaves nor masters. Okay. We say neither simps nor tyrants. Okay. <laughs> and what an acceptance of a boundary does, certain limits to your enjoyment, it allows your partner to neither be a simp nor a tyrant. Mm. And, I mean, that takes courage because it really is a risk. Your, your partner could be a tyrant. They could oppress you. They could be manipulative. They could be controlling. To, to what extent do you accept a little bit of tyranny in your life? Um, perhaps it'll come with some simp uh, behavior as well. Sure. Um, the price you pay, um, you may get love. Mm. But the, the non-dupes won't love. Man, They'll that's so... Single. Yeah. Now, okay, so, so Dwayne... And, and we can kind of edit this out if, if we don't want to include it. But can, can you take everything you've talked about and explore the the semi-recent thing that came out with Jonah Hill? Are, are you able to go there at some level? I can, I can try. It, it takes, okay. It takes, it takes a little bit of courage uh, to do that. But uh, Hey, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it seems to me that... Um, this neoliberal idea that the boundary is only for Jonah Hill. Mm. I, I see that as a neoliberal idea. Look, if you're living in a limitless environment and you're only focusing on yourself, you're going to allow capitalism to continue to fuck with the rest of, you know, to, to, to fuck with the rest of the world, to affect the environment in the way it has, to, um, to produce um, the worst type of uh, destruction on the planet, uh, you're going to you're not going to limit that mm. I mean, to take a really extreme example and I'm not suggesting that they are the same if you're living in a society that seems to be about limitless tyranny it's your ethical responsibility if you care about that society to say hold on now let's let's set some let's set some limits that we can both live with yeah and I think that's really important because We've lost sight of the fact that our society isn't what it used to be when Marx was describing it. Before 1844, I should say. Marx before 1844. When he was talking about commodity fetishism, when he was talking about, uh, even when he's talking about surplus value, when he's talking about the four types of alienation and these sorts of things. I'm sorry, that's not the world we're living in anymore. That's a part of the world. But that doesn't characterize the world as such, the universe of capitalism today. Mm. Um in the old days, how was tyranny functioning? Tyranny was uh, at the level of the all. It, 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 um, it anchored the social order together. It would exploit you. It would extract something from you and so on. And relationships were in some sense tyrannical. And it took us a while to realize that, that the idea of the nuclear family as, as uh, stabilizing as it was for society, there was uh, one half of society, women, uh, who were disproportionately affected by that in ways that were quite horrible. This separates my discourse from somebody like Jordan Peterson, for example, because I do believe that patriarchy was a horrible thing and I don't want to go back to it. Right. Um, yet, on the other hand, uh, this isn't the world that we're living in anymore. If you look at um, how 
Nazism used to function. It used to explicitly exclude Jews, Freemasons, homosexuals, and so on, and try and kick them out of the... Right. Yeah, it was an explicit prohibition. You know, but in a society of enjoyment, of pure excess, and these sorts of things, you don't have explicit prohibitions anymore. You have affirmations, and we're seeing it more and more at the level of policy. Um, it's not what you can't do. It's what not only you can do, but in some sense you have to do. You must enjoy yourself. Yeah. And if you don't enjoy yourself in this particular way, then you are not explicitly excluded. You are implicitly excluded, but in a much more terrible way. You know, it's it's a much more tyrannical form of exclusion because you can't point at the problem and say, look, this, you have anti-Semitic legislation or whatever else. You know, you have ex implicit exclusions, which shifts the tyranny from the symbolic into the real. Mm. And I think that, that, that makes our situation not better today. We can talk about the progress that we've gone through in civilization. Hard, I mean, blood, sweat, and tears uh, went into the progress that we have achieved. But I think we're in a worse situation today. Mm. Today, more than ever, we know that, there are, that patriarchy is tyrannical. And we're really feeling the effects that we've never heard a more um, popular attack upon patriarchy than we do today. In the time of patriarchy, when it was really severe, we didn't hear the, as many people complaining about it. But now we do. Uh, at a time when it's not as supposedly as severe, at least not in the symbolic, it's not. We don't have the prohibitions that we used to have. These prohibitions still exist. I'm not denying that. Sure. It's not the dominant order. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So, one of the things that's coming up for me is. Um... I know I've mentioned this guy on the podcast. I feel like some people love him. Some people hate him. I probably both love and hate him like I do almost everybody, including myself. Uh, Byung Chohan, he's this South Korean philosopher. And yet he has one book, The Burnout Society, where he says in like, and I guess he's drawing on Foucault, but in, in the kind of disciplinary kind of society context, the modal verb was, and he kind of connects it to the superego, was you should or you must. But now in what he calls the achievement society, the modal verb is you can. And I, and I know that's kind of similar to what Zizek does with like the superego. But I, I found that just fascinating because he ultimately argues that's more oppressive because we end up just kind of oppressing ourselves than it was in the past. We, we, ha we, we have to take more responsibility for our own behaviors. Yeah. That's what, that's what today's boundary discourse is saying. You yeah. are responsible for your own behaviors. That's much worse than being able to blame another person for you. Yeah. But I would go a little bit further than, Please. than you can. And I think this is something that Zizek also misses. It's not simply you can. It's sometimes it's okay. Mm. You know, sometimes. Okay, so yeah, help, help me understand that. Yeah, the sometimes is important because it, it introduces a pragmatic version of the limit or a pragmatic version of the affirmation of what you can do. Um, and I think that's really difficult because before we would have a rule, some sort of a law, you can't whatever. And that law would endure in time. So it would be the same at time A as it would be at time B as C and so on. Sure. Today we have... Sometimes it's okay. 
So you can, you can implement a particular rule at time A, and it can be mutually exclusive to the same rule that you would, a different rule that you would implement at time B. So perhaps you can say, it's okay to be in a relationship uh, where your partner engages in promiscuous sexuality. At time B, you can say, if your partner engages in promiscuous sexuality, you don't respect yourself so much, and it's okay to walk away. Time C, you can say something different. And this is precisely what we see on Twitter, social media today. We see these little aphoristic statements, words of wisdom, mm. and so on, where you basically can affirm any behavior uh, at any time. And these words of wisdom, I think, are tyrannical mm. because they don't endure in time. And what they do is they produce in the moment a sense of a certain type of rule, but it's actually a rule that's saturated in Jewish songs. So there's no prohibition there. And it allows you just to go to get to the next rule, to get to the next one, to get to the next one. And I think it's, it's a really limitless form of um, legislation. Yeah. Oh man, that's, that's, that's so good. So, okay, Dwayne, I, I know we have maybe 10 minutes or so. Um, is, is there, is there anything else that, that you've kind of been thinking about or, or writing about or just wrestling with theoretically, existentially that you kind of just want to throw out there that might be interesting to explore? I'm, I'm, I'm loving where this conversation has gone. I'm just curious if you know, there's something I've missed asking you or just something that's energizing you that we could explore together. Yeah, it's tough for me because, you know, things have changed. I used to have research questions and I used to be, I used to have research projects. And now I'm, you know, what really excites me is I, I, I hear what people are saying mm. and what people are saying or what they're doing in society or in the clinic. Um, I take that as my uh, fuel um, to theorize. And in this way, uh, I wouldn't say that I necessarily have a particular project, except for the fact that I'm interested in whatever is happening today, the contemporary discontents of culture. I'm most fascinated by the fact that we are experiencing significant um, uh, feelings among people of social, what would you call it, dislocation. People don't feel included. People can't seem to get out of their bedrooms today. Um, we're engaging with the world through the fuzzy boundaries or the fuzzy mediations of contemporary social media. Media used to be a boundary. It mm. used to introduce boundaries. You know, you could either go from uh, one news channel to another and there'd be a boundary. Right. Or social media, it's like um, it, it, it's, um, it's, not, it's not mediating anymore. All it's doing is it's, uh, it's allowing us to stay in our rooms. It's allowing us to to uh, to reach out to the world without actually going out into the world. Mm. And so I'm thinking about how this idea of philosophy in the bedroom could be taken quite literally today. Um, philosophy today, I think, is entirely reducible to the bedroom. Mm. It's it's you know. This sounds sexy. You know, I like it. I mean, it it is sexy in a way. <laughs> it's sexy, and that's the problem. Philosophy is very sexy. Um, it's a problem for psychoanalysis. Freud once said that the philosophers are trying to patch up holes in the world. Yeah. In some sense, we could read that as an attempt to um, to uh, to not encounter the limits to the bedroom, so mm. that you can actually step outside again and and feel that that anxiety of having to cross a threshold. 
uh, cross uh, out into the world uh, beyond the insularity of your own enjoyment to mm. see that other people have their own forms of enjoyment too. And perhaps some of those forms of enjoyment seem to you to be passe. Maybe heterosexuality is passe for some people, but it's nonetheless a form of enjoyment like any other. Yeah. And, and to kind of see that other people can experience uh, the world differently than the way we do and engage in different discursive practices and, and different forms of philosophy and so on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is a bit of a tricky one for me because I'm not even sure I know how to define something like masculinity, but I know in certain ways that's become a bit passe to 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 kind of identify as a man or to find some kind of jouissance in being a man. What 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 are your thoughts on that? I know that's a tricky one. I I, I know it's really tricky because you know the, traditionally in the in the clinic. Um, um, the masculine question, let's call it. It's yeah. a discursive question in the, for, for, um, for Lacan. It's mostly, it's a discursive question. It's not without biology, but it's certainly not reducible to biology. No. Um, so the question of masculinity versus the question of femininity, it's really paradoxical because we could say if there were two major questions in the clinic, traditionally, it was, am I a man or am I a woman? What is my gender? It's a gender question, yeah. gender trouble. That's one question. The other is a question confronting death. Am I alive or am I dead? One was a hysterical question. One was an obsessional question. Today, men are asking questions about what it means to be a man. Mm. That's a feminine position from which to ask a question. You're asking a question about what am I to the other? You know, what, yeah. what is my, am I really this man I claim myself to be? And so on. And so increasingly we hear um, people who we would traditionally consider to be men, perhaps some would call them cis men or whatever else, sure. ask the question of their gender. But to very to ask that question is to presuppose already that masculinity is not what it used to be. Mm. It's not what it used to be. The simp or the tyrant, for example, to be a simp or a tyrant is no longer to be a man. Yeah. Um, and so I think that this is this is a problem. On the other hand, we can ask, what is a woman? Which is a question that has been asked by a lot of people. Um, and I've been totally dissatisfied about the answers that I've heard because mm. we don't have an answer for the left anymore. If the word left means anything anymore, and sure. I'm not sure it does. But I mean, if I were to situate myself on a political spectrum, traditionally it would be on the far left. I'm not saying I'm there anymore. I'm not sure quite what it means, but. The, the, the question on the left, um, uh, it's, uh, it's typically a woman is a woman. A woman is a person who identifies as a woman. It's a tautology. It, it is a tautology in a certain circular way. I'm not saying all the left says Sure. That. The left isn't without uh, a biological answer as well and so on. Um, on the right, we hear um, a woman is biology. Mm -hmm. Women is reducible to biology, and I don't think either of these positions are satisfying to me. You know, they're not to me um, either. Uh, I, I think both of those positions come with uh, problems. Um, it's to be discovered what a woman is. On the one hand, mm. uh, both of those positions conceal what is most at stake in the enigma of femininity. 
when we answer the question, what is a woman, we've already lost the point because it's the question that defines mm. the feminine position in a certain respect. It's the question without an answer. Yeah. And to live with that is uh, really difficult, I think. Oh, man. Dude, I love that. And that's one of the reasons I love psychoanalysis. <laughs> yeah, that's... It that's. Was, really... It was Freud's position. I posted this on Twitter a few days ago. Yeah. A few days ago. Freud said it's not our position to answer what is a woman. You know, in contemporary culture, look, you see only two positions. It's about time we offer a third. Mm. You know, um, the position is a woman is a woman. Okay, that's one valid position. Absolutely. A woman is tied to biology. That's also a valid position. You know, there are different paradigms of jouissance. But the psychoanalytic position is to say, well, I don't know. Let's begin there. Yeah. Oh, man. Man, you're speaking to my heart. This is great. <laughs> now, I, I know you, you've mentioned several times in this episode, like this conversation, the simp. And uh, man, I'll, I'll just be honest and say, I'll, you know, you know that I work with a lot of men in, in I knew psychotherapy, not psychoanalysis, but, but I would say ideas from psychoanalysis really inform just who I am as a person in my work as a therapist. I'll have guys that come in and part of what they're wanting to work on is not being a simp. They use that language. And so I'm, I'm, I'm just curious if, if you have any thoughts on why so many men feel like they are simps or what's, what's led them to that point. I, I know there's no easy answer here, but I'm just curious if you could riff on that. Because it's just something I often think about and work with. It's, it's a difficult uh, thing, I think. Um, first off, it, we would be wise to relinquish our fear of being a simp. Mm. Um, there's nothing wrong with being kind, uh, cordial, caring, and, and, and so on. I think what people are afraid of is the limitlessness of a relationship where one is giving everything they have mm. and feeling like there's no breathing room for themselves or their own desires, and so they get kind of devoured um, mm. by the other. And I think this is the fear, and that fear can give rise to um, an overexertion or, uh, for, toward masculinity. Um, uh, a move to the tyrannical position as a counterpoint. Very dangerous. You don't want to move to the, to the tyrannical position. Um, and it could also give rise to um, a nostalgia for um, what you believe has been lost, mm. which is what? Patriarchy? You really want to go back there. You want to go back to a world structured by fathers. No, that world's gone. Um you know, and so I think um, I'm mostly interested in the fear of being a simp. Okay. Uh, because from men, what you hear is the fear of being a simp. You don't hear, I want to be a simp. I love being a simp. Right. It's the fear, it's the fear of, of accepting your own boundaries and, and living with them. If it means that you're, you have to walk away from a position that's traumatizing to you then mm. walk away mm. you just walk away from it you're not obligated to remain in an environment that's a fi a, a, asphyxiating mm. you can walk away there's nothing tyrannical about walking away um it also means you don't have to respond to it with uh, virility and anger uh and uh, 
and uh, ruthless control mechanisms, which is the counterpoint to the simp position. As I say, neither simp nor tyrant. Yeah. No, and to have the boundary to walk away, I'm going to use the language because I don't care if I get canceled, that you're not being a pussy or, or weak or anything like that. You're not being a bitch, as some of my clients put it, if, if you engage in that type of distancing. Well, the, the best way um, to avoid the sin position is to be calm and caring. Um, and to and to accept that um, you you can have a life for yourself that's not reducible to your relationship. You can have a life that's not reducible to your relationship. Okay, say some more about that. I love that, Dwayne. Well, I think that um, there are many people today who are finding that the best way to implement lack in their personal private relationships is to... Um, not always be available for them. Mm. It doesn't mean that uh, you disappear from the relationship. Sure. But it means that in having a passion, philosophy, a career, whatever else, you're also introducing a, a, a space um, that can mediate the relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think that's really well said. Yeah. Okay, Dwayne, I know in a second I need to jump off, but maybe before we end is... Is there anything that you want to either promote or just throw out there in terms of where people can find you if they're interested in your work? I, I'd love to just continue to connect some of my audience to you and and to what you're up to. Uh, I think people can find me if they're looking. Uh, there's <laughs> really that I want. There's nothing really that I want to promote. Uh, there's, I, I suppose, there's a few books coming out this year. Um, I have um, a new book. Uh, Called, uh, titled Psychoanalytic Sociology mm. that's coming out where I'm, yeah, where I'm, it's with Bloomsbury. Okay. And it's a book that Slavoj Žižek encouraged me to write, mm. um, which is uh, an attempt to offer uh, another approach, not just to uh, Žižek's work, yeah. but also to, uh, to sociology as it's being taught in the university today. So I go right back to the beginning um, to the foundations of sociology, some of the so-called forefathers of sociology, and I reread them. Mm. And I try and offer um, another point of departure for thinking about sociology that's not trapped in uh, the paradigm that's a bygone paradigm, the sociological imagination and, and this sort of stuff. Okay. Um, and Damn, that sounds I fascinating. I, sh- I focus on the concept of strangeness and the stranger. Okay. And I say this you know, whereas we used to talk about strangers in sociology, now yeah. we can talk about sociology itself as a strange discipline. Mm. And it's quite different. And, and the way in which I know we only have a minute or two, the way in yeah. which um, social bonds themselves used to have strangers within them, people on the periphery who were trying to move to the mar- uh, to the center, uh, people that were kind of in the group, but not of the group and sure. sort of stuff. But now I think this isn't the dominant paradigm. I think now what we have is strangeness elevated to a very principle of the social bond. And what that produces is what we've been talking about, fraternities, segregation from the world, insular modes of enjoyment, and this sort of stuff. And I'm trying to to, uh, make that the subject matter of sociology. Uh, Maybe as a way to rescue sociology, because I really think... um, it's in a major crisis today. It can't speak to the world mm. that we're in precisely because it's contributing to the very problem. It has charged itself 
with analyzing. Wow. That's great, man. Okay, I can't wait to read that. Well, do, you, do you know when it comes out? I think at the end of the year, it's, it's in print right now, maybe a few months. I don't know. It's not on the Bloomsbury page yet. Okay. Um, so we'll see. It's, it's, a, it's a thick book, um, and it's, it's, it's playful, but it's, it's more rigorous than some of the other books I've put out recently that are just me speaking in transcriptions. Okay. Man, well, I'm going to have to buy that, and hopefully I can have you on, and we can do a bit of a series on it or something. That'd be fun. I would love that. I would love that. I love I love the really rigorous theoretical stuff. Okay, yeah. I, I, I do too. I, I don't always understand it, but um, maybe I like to pretend. <laughs> awesome. Let's oh. pretend. That's, that's a fiction worth, uh, worth pursuing. Okay, all right, man. Well, hey, thanks again, and uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope that you were inspired and challenged by the conversation. I'd love to hear from you and I would love to connect. The best way to reach me is to go to my website. You can go to Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y. That's kikeautry.com. And there you'll find all my contact information. Or if you just Google my name, Kike Autry, you'll find my Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram accounts and you can reach out to me through those means. You can also check out the website of the practice that I work at, Katie Counseling for Men. That's katiecounselingformen.com, where I serve as the lead men's counselor, and you can reach out to me through that. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, or if you have any ideas on individuals that I could interview, please let me know. I'm always grateful to hear from my listeners Uh, This wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you so much, and as always, continue the conversation. Mm